When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The cask of Amontillado. though. The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You, who so well know the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length, I would be avenged. This was a point definitely settled, but the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish but punished with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my goodwill. I continued, as was my wont to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that smile now, was at the thought of his immolation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato, although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared. He prided himself on his connoisseurship in wine. Few Italians have the true virtuoso spirit. For the most part, their enthusiasm is adopted to suit the time and opportunity to practice imposture upon the British and Austrian millionaires. In painting, in Germany, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack, but in the matter of the old wines, he was sincere. In this respect, I did not defer from him materially. I was skillful in the Italian vintages myself, and bought largely whenever I could. It was about dusk, one evening, during the supreme madness of the carnival season, that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had on a tight-fitting party-strength dress, and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand. I said to him, My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you are looking today. But I have received a pipe of what passes for Amontialdo, and I have my doubts. How? said he. Amontialdo, a pipe? Impossible. And in the middle of a carnival... I have my doubts, I replied, and I was silly enough to pay the full Amontialdo price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontialdo! I have my doubts. Amontialdo! And I must satisfy them. Amontialdo! As you are engaged, I'm on my way to Lucchesi. If anyone has a critical turn, it is he. He will tell me. Lucchesi cannot tell Amontialdo from Sherry. And yet some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. Come, l let us go. Whither? To your vaults. <laughs> My friend, no. I will not oppose upon your good nature. I perceive you have an engagement. Lucchesi, 
I have no engagement. Come. My friend, no. It is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. Let us go, nevertheless. The cold is merely nothing. Amontillado. You've been imposed upon. And as for Lucchesi, he cannot distinguish Sherry from Amontillado. Thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself on my arm, and putting on a mask of black silk and drawing a roclair closely about my person, I suffered him to hurry me to my palazzo. There were no attendants at home. They had absconded to make merry in honor of the time. I told them that I should not return until the morning, and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance one and all, as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux, and giving one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suits of rooms to the archway that led to the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent and stood together upon the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresors. The gait of my friend was unsteady and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. The pipe, he said. It is farther on, said I, but observe the white webwork which gleams from these cavern walls. He turned toward me and looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled room of intoxication. Niter, he asked at length. Niter, I replied. How long have you had that cough? My poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. It is nothing, he said at last. Come, I said with decision. We will go back. Your health is precious. You're rich, respected, admired, beloved. You were happy, as once I was. You're a man to be missed. For me, it is no matter. We'll go back. You'll be ill, and I cannot be responsible. Besides, there is Lucchesi. Enough, he said. The coughs of me are nothing will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. True, true, I replied, and indeed I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily, but you should use all proper caution. A draught of this, Medoc will defend us from the damps. Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mold. Drink, I said, presenting him the wine. He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and nodded to me familiarly, while his bells jingled. I drink, he said, the buried that repose around us. And I to your long life. He again took my arm and we proceeded. These vaults, he said, are extensive. The Montresors, I replied, were a great and numerous family. I forget your arms. A huge human foot door in filled azure, the foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heel. Then the motto? Nemo mi impun lecessit. Good, he said. The wine sparkled in his eyes and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the Madoc. We had passed through long walls of piled skeletons with casks and Puncheons intermingling in the inmost recesses of the catacombs. I paused again, and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. 
The niter, I said. See, it increases. It hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the bones. Come, we will go back ere it's too late. Your cough. It's nothing, he said. Let us go on. But first, another drought of the Medoc. I broke and reached him a flagon of de Grave. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upwards with a gesticulation I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the movement, a grotesque one. You do not comprehend, he said. Not I, I replied. Then you are not of the Brotherhood. How? You are not of the Masons. Yes, yes, I said. Yes, yes. You. Impossible. A Mason. A Mason, I replied. A sign, he said. A sign. It is this, I answered, producing a trowel from beneath the folds of my Roclair. You jest, he exclaimed, recoiling a few paces. But let us proceed to the Amontillado. Be it so, I said, replacing the tool beneath the cloak and again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and descending again, arrived at a deep crypt in which the foulness of the air caused our flambeau rather to glow than flame. At the most remote end of the crypt there appeared another less spacious. Its walls had been lined with human remains, piled at the vault overhead in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. Three sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth side the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mound of some size. Within the wall, thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior crypt of recess, in depth of about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no especial use within itself, but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roof of the catacombs, and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavored to pry into the depth of the recess. His termination the feeble light did not enable us to see. Proceed, I said. Herein lies the Amontillado. As for Lucchesi, he's an ignoramus, interrupted my friend, as he stepped unsteadily forward while I followed immediately at his heels. In niche, and finding an instant that he had reached the extremity of the niche, and finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more, and I had feltered him to the granite. In its service were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet horizontally. From one of these descended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was about the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was much too astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. Pass your hand, I said, over the wall. You cannot help feeling the niter. Indeed, it is very damp. Once more, let me implore you to return. No? Then I must positively leave you, but I must first render you all the little attentions in my power. The Amontillado, ejaculated my friend, not yet recovered from his astonishment. True, 
I replied. The Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among the pile of bones of which I have before spoken. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar. With these materials and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of masonry when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had in great measure worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was the low moaning cry from the depth of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long and obstinate silence. I had laid the second tier and the third and the fourth, and then I heard the furious vibrations of the chains. The noise lasted for several minutes, during which that I might hearken to with more satisfaction. I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bones. When at last the clinking subsided, I resumed the trowel and finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused, and holding the flambeau over the mason work, I threw a feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams bursting suddenly from the throat of a chained form seemed to thrust me violently back. For a brief moment I hesitated, I, I trembled. Unsheathing my rapier, I began to grope with it about the recess, but the thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied. I reapproached the wall. I replied to the yells of him who clamored. I re-echoed. I aided. I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this, and the clamorer grew still. It was now midnight, and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, ninth, and tenth tier. I had finished a portion of the last and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. But now there came from out of the niche a low laugh that erected the hairs upon my head. He was succeeded by a sad voice, which I had difficulty in recognizing as that of the noble Fortunato. The voice said, <laughs> A very good joke indeed, an excellent jest. We'll have many a rich laugh about this at the palazzo. <laughs> Over our wine. <laughs> the Amontillado, I said. <laughs> yes, the Amontillado. But is it not getting late? Will not they be awaiting us at the Palazzo, the Lady Fortunato, and the rest? Let us be gone. Yes, I said. Let us be gone. For the love of God, Montresor. Yes, I said. For the love of God. But to these words I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud... Fortunato! No answer. I called again. Fortunato! No answer still. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in return only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick. It was the dampness of the catacombs that made it so. I hastened to make an end of my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry, I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the half of a century, no mortal has disturbed them.
in pace, requiesced Cat. The Black Cat Tomorrow I die. Tomorrow I die, and today I want to tell the world what happened, and thus perhaps free my soul from the horrible weight which lies upon it. But listen. Listen, and you shall hear how I have been destroyed. When I was a child, I had a natural goodness of soul, which led me to love animals. All kinds of animals, but especially those animals we call pets. Animals which have learned to live with men and share their homes with them. There is something in the love of those animals which speaks directly to the heart of the man who has learned from experience on how uncertain and changeable is the love of other men. I was quite young when I married. You'll understand the joy I felt to find that my wife shared with me my love for animals. Quickly, she got for us several pets of the most likable kind. We had birds, some goldfish, a fine dog, and a cat. Cat was a beautiful animal of unusually large size and entirely black. I named the cat Pluto, and it was the pet I liked best. I alone fed it, and it followed me all around the house. It was even with difficulty that I stopped it from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which, however, my own character became greatly changed. I began to drink too much wine, and other strong drinks. As the days passed, I became less loving in my manner. I became too quick to anger. I forgot how to smile and laugh. My wife, yes, and my pets too, all except the cat, were made to feel the change in my character. One night I came home quite late from the inn, where I now spend more and more time drinking. Walking with an uncertain step, I made my way with effort into the house. As I entered, I saw, or thought I saw, that Pluto the cat was trying to stay out of my way to avoid me. This action by an animal which I thought still loved me made me angry beyond reason. My soul seemed to fly from my body. I took a small knife out of my coat and opened it. Then I took the poor animal by the neck with one quick movement and I cut out one of its fear-filled eyes. Slowly, the cat got well. The hole where its eye had been was not a pretty thing to look at. It is true, but the cat no longer appeared to suffer any pain. As might be expected, however, it ran from me in fear whenever I came near. Why should it not run? Yet, this did not fail to anger me. I felt growing inside myself a new feeling. Who has not a hundred times found himself doing wrong, doing some evil thing for no other reason than because he knows he should not? Are not we humans at all times pushed, ever driven into some unknown way to break the law just because we understand it to be the law? One day, in cold blood, I tied a strong rope around the cat's neck and taking it down into the cellar under the house. I hung it from one of the wood beams above my head. I hung it there until it was dead. 
I hung it there with tears in my eyes. I hung it because I knew it had loved me because I felt it had given me no reason to hurt it because I knew that my doing so was a wrong so great, a sin so deadly that it would place my soul forever outside the reach of the love of God. That same night, as I lay sleeping, I heard through my open window the cries of our neighbors. I jumped from my bed and found that the entire house was filled with fire. It was only with great difficulty that my wife and I escaped, and when we were out of the house, all we could do was stand and watch it burn to the ground. I thought of the cat as I watched it burn, the cat whose dead body I had left hanging in the cellar. It seemed almost that the cat had, in some mysterious way, caused the house to burn so that it could make me pay for my evil act, so that it could take revenge upon me. Months went by, and I could not drive the thought of the cat out of my mind. One night I sat at the inn, drinking as usual. In the corner I saw a dark object that I had not seen before. I went over to see what it could be. It was a cat. A cat almost exactly like Pluto. I touched it with my hand and patted it, passing my hand softly along its back. The cat rose and pushed its back against my hand. Suddenly I realized that I wanted the cat. I offered to buy it from the innkeeper, but he claimed he'd never seen the animal before. As I left the inn, it followed me, and I followed it to do so. It soon became a pet of both my wife and myself. The morning after I brought it home, however, I discovered that this cat, like Pluto, had only one eye. How was it possible that I had not noticed this the night before? The facts only made my wife love the cat more, but I myself found a feeling of dislike growing within me. My growing of dislike of the animal only seemed to increase its love for me. It followed me, followed me everywhere, always. When I sat, it lay down under my chair. When I stood, it got up between my feet and nearly made me fall. Wherever I'd went, it was always there. At night, I dreamed of it, and I began to hate that cat. One day, my wife called to me from the cellar of the old building where we were now forced to live. As I went down the stairs, the cat, following me as always, ran under my feet and nearly threw me down. In sudden anger, I took a knife and struck wildly at the cat. Quickly, my wife put her arm out and stopped me. This only increased my anger, and without thinking, I turned and put the knife deep into her heart. She fell to the floor and died without a sound. I spent a few moments looking for the cat, but it was gone. And I had other things to do, for I knew I must do something with the body and quickly. Suddenly I noted a place in the wall of the cellar where the stones had been added to the wall to cover an old fireplace, which was no longer wanted. 
The walls were not very strongly built, and I found I could easily take those stones down. Behind them there was, as I knew there must be, a hole just big enough to hold a body. With much effort, I put the body in and carefully put the stones back in their place. I was pleased to see that it was quite impossible for anyone to know that a single stone had been moved. Days passed. Still, there was no cat. A few people came and asked about my wife, but I answered them easily. Then one day, several officers of the police came. Certain that they could find nothing, I asked them in and went with them as they searched. Finally, they searched the cellar from end to end. I watched them quietly, and as I expected, they noticed nothing. But as I started up the stairs again, I felt myself driven by some unknown inner force to let them know, to make them know, that I won the battle. The walls of this building, I said, are very strongly built. It is a fine old house. And as I spoke, I struck with my stick the very place in the wall which was the body of my wife. Immediately, I felt a cold feeling up and down my back as we heard coming out of the wall itself a horrible cry. For one short moment, the officers stood looking at each other and quickly began to pick at the stones and in short time, before them, they saw the body of my wife, black with dried blood and smelling of decay. On the body's head, its one eye filled with fire, its wide open mouth the color of blood, sat the cat, crying out its revenge. The Telltale Heart True. Nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous, I had been, and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease has sharpened my senses, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken, and observe how healthfully, how calmly, I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how the first idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I loved the old man. He'd never wronged me. He'd never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so, by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now, 
At this point, you fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing, but you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what simulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the week before I killed him. And every night around midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then when I made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, so that no light shine out of it, and I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head in within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. <laughs> would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously for the hinges creaked, I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight, but I found the eye always closed. And so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man, indeed, to suspect that every night just at twelve I looked upon him while he slept. On the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my own sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with thick darkness for the shutters were closed, fastened through the fear of robbers, and so I know that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing on it steadily, steadily. I had my head in, and I was about to open the lantern, when my thumb slipped upon the fastening, and the old man sprung out of bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still, and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches on the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. 
I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it is welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt, and I pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he'd been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he'd turned in the bed. His fears had been growing ever since, growing upon him. He'd been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He'd been saying to himself, It's nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he'd been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he never saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until, at length, a simple dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot out of the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones, but I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the senses. Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew the sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet, I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could, maintained the ray upon the eve. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I told you that I am nervous, so I am. Now, at the dead hour of the night, amid in the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror, yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating 
grew louder and louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now my new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done, but for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through a wall, and at length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eyes would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs, and then I took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited it all between the scantlings. Then I replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I'd been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. (laughs) When I made an end of those labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. A suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure and undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerfully, they chattered of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and chatted. 
the ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definitiveness. Until, at length, I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet, as the sound increased, what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much a sound as a watch makes, when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh, God. What can I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, louder, and louder, and still the men chatted pheasantly and smiled. Was it possible that they heard it not? Almighty God. No, no, they heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die, and now, again, hark louder, 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 louder. Villains! I shrieked. Disassemble me no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks here. Here! It is the beating of his hideous heart. Hey everyone. It may be a little weird hearing me talk normally coming off that last story, but um, I just wanted to say thanks for listening. This was a lot of fun to do. I've, uh, I've been a fan of Poe since like middle school where we read the raven for like our our poetry week or whatever and i've always been kind of interested in his other stuff but i never really took the time to actually read it um but he was a big influence for me in middle school and high school when i used to write poetry and a lot of my poetry was very very dark and it it touched on a lot of the themes that i think poe's story touched on as well like that overwhelming feeling of dread or the just understanding that all of this is going to end one day, but we're not going to stay on that topic for too long. Um, so out of these, uh, what was it, four, three stories? Out of these three stories, which one was your favorite, and which ones would you like to see me do in the future? Maybe from a different author or from Poe himself? Let me know in the comment section below. I think my favorite was either the first one or the black cat. I, I don't know. The Telltale Heart is a classic, of course, but I, I, I've heard it so many times, you know, but it, it was fun to put my little my little spin on it. I got a little little crazy there at the end, but I suppose that's the point. So 
anyway let me know what you all thought of these if you want more that would awesome that would be awesome to let me know as well uh, leave me some suggestions for other stories other authors in the comment section below as well and um yeah I hope you all enjoyed see you again soon with some new stories take care of yourselves and each other and as always stay safe out there